lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they, they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name in which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the, word has, the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray again together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for these precious promises from Scripture. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that in that prayer you interceded for us. And Lord, we thank you that you are still interceding for us before the throne of our Father. Lord, we pray that, that as we attend unto these words from your scriptures, Lord, that you would lend power to them by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, that the same God who prayed this prayer, Lord, that you would be working in us and praying for us even as we receive this word, Lord, that your name might be glorified in our hearts, that you might change us as we see what you have done for us, as we see what you have prayed for us. And Lord, we pray this in your most beautiful name. Amen. 
So this morning we're continuing our study of Jesus' high priestly prayer, the, the precious passage of Scripture where Jesus, who is about to depart for Gethsemane and then to the cross, prays earnestly for himself. He asks the Father to glorify the Son. But as we saw this week, this was no selfish prayer. He was asking ultimately that he would be glorified so that he could in turn glorify the Father. He says, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now he was praying for himself, but in so doing, he was also praying for the disciples. And he was also praying for us. He was praying for for salvation, as we saw last week. Jesus had been sent by the Father into the world, but he was leaving. He was going back to the Father. He had completed his holy task. He had manifested his Father's name to the disciples, and they believed in turn that the Father had sent him. He had faithfully reflected the Father to them. His mission was accomplished. There was only one thing left to do. Now, granted, it was by far the most difficult part of his mission. He was about to die for the sins of his people. And knowing that that was coming, he asked the Father to glorify him, to empower him to be faithful to the end. He was also praying that the Father would accept his sacrifice and that he would be resurrected from the dead and that he would be received back into glory. Hendrickson paraphrases the prayer. Grant that by, my, by means of my entire going to thee, death, resurrection, ascension, and coronation, I may be glorified, that thou mayest be glorified by me. Jesus is praying that in, in all that is to come, in his suffering, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in his, his own glorification in heaven, that he would be glorified in all of it. And that through all of it, the Father would be glorified, and that salvation would come for the people of God through what Jesus did. And now, having prayed this, he focuses his prayer directly on the disciples. Looking here at verses 10 to 19, he contrasts them with the world. He wasn't praying for the world, but for those that the Father had given him from the world. Jesus uses the word world 18 times in this high priestly prayer. 11 times in verses 10 to 19 alone. And here we have yet another example of the double meaning that John continually employs in his gospel account. Jesus is leaving the world, but he's leaving his disciples in the world. And they had once been part of the world, but they had been called out of the world. And now Jesus is sending them into the world, but the world will hate them because they are not of the world, just as Jesus is not of the world. They're to be in the world, but not of the world. Jesus is praying that they'd be protected from the world, not necessarily physically, but protected spiritually. He's praying that they would be set apart from the world. He's praying that they would be preserved and sanctified. 
As we saw last week, this, this whole prayer really comes down to five petitions. And the last four are really under the umbrella of the first request. The first is glorify your son in verses 1 and 5. Keep them in verses 11 and 15. Sanctify them in verse 17. Unite them with each other in verse 21. And unite them with me, verse 24. This morning we're going to see Jesus' prayer for preservation from verses 11 to 13 and for sanctification from verses 14 to 19. Preservation, verses 11 to 13, and sanctification, verses 14 to 19. Preserve them. Verses 11 to 13. Verse 11, Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So Jesus is about to leave the world to go back to the Father, but the disciples must remain in the world for now, and so Jesus asks the Father to keep them. And there's two parts of this. He asks the Father to keep them in his name, and he asks the Father to keep them together. So first, what does it mean to be kept in God's name? The name of the Father is exalted above his creation, above every other name, as is the name of the Son. And to be kept in his name is to be protected, to be preserved in our salvation. One of of the doctrines of grace is known as perseverance of the saints. But perseverance is really a misnomer because it is not that we persevere, but that we are preserved. God is keeping us so that we will never fall away from him. If we were left up to our own ability to persevere, we would immediately fall away. We are dependent on the grace of the Lord to keep us in the salvation that he first called us into. Now, English English versions translate verses 11 and 12 either as keep them in the name that you gave me or keep those you gave me in your name. The Greek could actually be translated either way. And both are true. The scriptures do refer to the Father giving Jesus a name that is above every name, Philippians 2.9. So it is entirely plausible for Jesus to pray to keep them in the name that you gave me. However, I believe that the context points to keep those, in the, keep those that you gave me in your name actually makes more sense. Because Jesus has just spoken about manifesting God's name to the disciples. So he's saying, keep them in that name. Keep them in, the, in your name that I have manifested to them. And Jesus here uses a particular name for God. He refers to God here as Holy Father. Holy Father. This is the only time that he does so in all of the scriptures. This is an amazing juxtaposition of two of the glorious attributes of God, his transcendence on the one hand and his imminence on the other. God is far beyond us. 
But God is also present with us. He is the holy God and he is also God the Father. He is God our Father if we are truly in Christ. This also points ahead to verses 17 to 19 where where Jesus points to his own consecration or sanctification and that of the disciples. So we are being kept in the name of our Holy Father. And Jesus continues, that they may be one even as we are one. Christian unity is a direct result of our being kept by God. Paul criticizes the Corinthians for divisiveness in 1 Corinthians, but he says in 11.19 that there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So there will be division in the church. People will divide themselves from true doctrine. And true doctrine must divide itself from those who, who adhere to false doctrine. Here, Christian unity is a reflection of the unity of the Trinity, of the unity within the Godhead. Jesus said in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. They're one in spirit. They're one in purpose. They're one in nature. They're one in love. Jesus will come back to this again in verses 20 to 23, and we'll spend more time on it then. But just for a second, look down to verse 21. He prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So again, he he sets up the, the Trinity, the unity of the Godhead, as the paradigm for the unity of the church. And this prayer has been answered in part. None of us here believes exactly the same thing, but we're still able to fellowship together. And I pray that we are growing in love for one another as we overlook minor differences and work through the bigger ones. And there's also a unity in the universal church that cuts across denominational boundaries, that cuts across racial and socioeconomic boundaries. In my travels, I've had sweet fellowship with brothers and sisters of different denominations and doctrinal convictions. Now, that doesn't mean that I could actually join some of these churches, but I was still able to to experience and enjoy sweet Christian fellowship. And so we strive for unity. We strive for it, but not unity at the expense of truth. Now, when it comes to differences of doctrine, there's only three possibilities. You may be right and the other person wrong. You may be wrong and the other person right. Or you might both be wrong. But whatever the differences are, they must be dealt with with a heart of love. You've heard me talk about this several times, but but I've I've found it very helpful to consider uh, doctrinal differences in the category of primary, secondary, and tertiary issues. This is theological triage. When somebody comes, when when the, the ambulances would come back from the, the front in times of war, the the those working in the surgical hospitals would divide those into 
into primary, secondary, and tertiary emergencies. So, so those that, that were primary were, were those that, that if, if the person was not operated on immediately, they would die. But then there's those that, that are, are dangerous and, and different and, and potentially life-threatening, but, but need to be looked at in a secondary category. And then finally, there's things like that are, are minor, things like a broken arm that, that really can be left for a time. So when we think about these things in a, in a theological capacity, we think of those, those issues that are primary are those that determine whether somebody is genuinely a Christian or not. Now, in different, in different uh, convictions, there's, there's, some are going to, to draw the line in different places. But most would agree that those that are of primary importance are issues like the deity of Christ. Like the fact that, that he is fully God and fully man, that Jesus died for our sins on the cross, that he rose again. Consider issues like the, the authority and sufficiency and inerrancy of Scripture. These are the types of things that determine whether somebody is a Christian or not. And if, if somebody has a different view in those things, you can have no Christian fellowship. We cannot have Christian fellowship with Mormons, even though they're, they're striving to make them to present themselves as just being another denomination. They add to the Word of God. They take away from the deity of Christ. And in so many other areas, they show themselves to be, to be heretical in their position. And then we look at the, the area of, of secondary. Now, in the areas of, of secondary, we would have things that where, where we can disagree and they might, they might affect our ability to be able to fellowship in the same church context. For example, I, I have, have dear brothers and sisters who hold to a different view of baptism. Even people who, who are part of this church who hold to a different view of baptism. But I could never go and serve as a pastor in a, in a paedo-baptist church. Because my theological conviction is that baptism is an act of faith done by a believer, not done by parents on behalf of children. So these are the types of, of things that would, that would, in some cases, limit our ability to be able to, to be part of a church together, but... They do not separate us from having Christian fellowship with each other, from having rich and fruitful fellowship with each other. Then we have the, the, the tertiary category. And again, some people believe that, that certain things are tertiary, and others might even put them in the secondary, or in some cases even a primary level. But, but I, I would hear, consider things like, like in some instances of eschatology, or I would, would view some, some the, 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 somebody's convictions on, on alcohol as being in the tertiary category, that they do not inhibit our ability to be able to, to walk together and to serve together. And yes, we can have fruitful discussions about these things, but within the context of the local church. 
But in and above all of these things, we must be characterized by love and respect. And when we fail in these things, and in our fallen nature we will fail in these things, we confess it as sin and ask forgiveness from one another. Yesterday, I providentially came across some of my correspondence with a, with a former leader of this church who has gone to be with the Lord. And we had some strong differences during the time that we served together, particularly over the doctrines of grace. And the differences were big enough that he felt that he could no longer remain in this church. Now, we didn't do things perfectly, but we talked through the issues. We worked through the issues. And I was blessed again even yesterday as I saw the love and, and respect that we had for each other and a love and respect that continued even to his death. The extent to which we're able to have Christian unity takes place, sorry, the extent to which this takes place is due to the fact that Christ prayed this prayer, and that he continues to pray this prayer, that he is continuing to pray for unity. And Christians already have spiritual unity because we are filled with the same Holy Spirit. Because we are, we are studying the same Holy Word. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6. So if that's true, if there already is unity spiritually in the church, how do we explain and how do we understand all of the denominations and splits that have taken place in the history of the church? How do we explain it? All division is caused by sin, but not all division is sinful. I'll say that again. All division is caused by sin, but not all division is sinful. There is a time and place to divide from someone who is walking in unrepentant sin or is persisting in false doctrine. This can take place either in the formal setting, in, in church discipline, or it can also take place in the, in the relational sense with people from other churches. We do such a person no favors by having fellowship with them as though nothing is wrong. In fact, breaking fellowship with them can actually be a means of grace that helps them to come to repentance. And furthermore, when we continue in fellowship with such a person, we ourselves are sinning against God. We all have a responsibility for each other in this sense. We have a responsibility to, to lovingly, diligently, carefully call one another to repentance. This is one of the means of grace that God has given for our preservation. 
Now one day, Jesus' prayer for unity will be answered in full, and there will be no disunity in the church as we gather together around the Lord as at his return. And any division between true Christians will disappear in the light of his glorious grace. As we see him as, we, as he is, as we worship him in spirit and in truth, without the encumbrance of sinful flesh. And until that day, we will grow in Christian unity as we grow in Christ-likeness. Jesus continues in verse 12 to say that while he was with the disciples, he kept them in the Father's name. He guarded them. So just as, as, as he has done that, he is, he is praying that the Father would now do it. He says they kept God's word, verse 6, because Jesus was keeping them. He truly was the good shepherd, faithfully protecting his sheep. And he hadn't lost any one of them except for Judas, the son of destruction. So what do we do with Judas? How do we understand Judas? Did Judas lose his salvation? Did Judas' will supersede God's will? Did Jesus fail in his protection of Judas? No, no, and no. Judas did not lose his salvation. He was never saved in the first place. Judas acted according to his depraved will, his unregenerate will. But even though God is not the author of sin, Judas' actions came about as the fulfillment of Scripture. Now, there are many Old Testament Scriptures that are fulfilled by Judas and his betrayal of Jesus. Psalm 41.9, Even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This was fulfilled in John 13 at the Last Supper as Jesus dipped his bread in the sop and then handed it to Judas. And then Psalm 109, verses 4 and 5 read, In return for my love they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. This Psalm of David has been a comfort to many of those who have been wrongly accused. But verse 8 obviously applies directly to Judas. May his days be few, may another take his office. This was fulfilled as Judas committed suicide, and then in the book of Acts as Matthias was chosen to take his place. Judas's sin and subsequent destruction wasn't due to any failure on Jesus' part. All the way back in John 6:70, Jesus said, referring to, to Judas, "Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil?" Jesus knew all about Judas from the beginning. He knew what Judas was going to do, but he chose him anyway. In fact, he chose him for that very purpose. Then in verse 13, Jesus says again that he is leaving, but that while he was in the world, he taught the disciples so that they would have his joy fulfilled in themselves. The knowledge that we are being preserved by God is a huge source of joy for the Christian. 
In John 15, where Jesus taught a great deal about what it means to abide in his love and the Father's love, he said in verse 11, These things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. May be full. Fellow Christians, are you living in the joy of the preservation of God for your very soul? God is preserving you and no one can pluck you out of his hand. Jesus declared in John 10, 28 and 29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. R.C. Sproul gives the illustration of a father and son and young son walking by a railroad track. And as they're walking close to this track, if, if the, walking hand in hand, if the safety of the son dependent, was dependent upon his grip on his father's hand, he would be in grave danger. But the father in those circumstances is gripping tightly around his son's hand. He is protecting his son. I would add, I would hope that the father would lead his son away from the railroad tracks. But the father is protecting the son. The father is keeping us. The father is keeping us in his love. Jesus is keeping us in his love. And nothing, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It is impossible for Christians to lose their salvation because they're being kept by the Father and being kept by the Son. Richard Hooker wrote that no man's condition is so sure as ours. The prayer of Christ is more than sufficient both to strengthen us, be we never so weak, and to overthrow all adversary power, be it never so strong and potent. The earth may shake, the pillars of the world may tremble under us, but concerning the man that trusteth in God, what is there in the world that shall change his heart, overthrow his faith, alter his affection towards God, or the affection of God to him? Beloved, this is the confidence that we have in Christ. And our eternal security is the direct answer to Jesus' prayer. As He is keeping us and as the Father is keeping us. Then in verses 14 to 19, Jesus prays that the Father would sanctify them. He now turns to describe the relationship between disciples and the world. He sends them into the world, but prays that they would be protected from the world. Again, they are in the world, but not of the world. He taught the disciples God's word, but the world hates them because they are not of the world, just as Jesus is not of the world. And Jesus spoke about this in John 15 as well. 
Abiding in Christ will result in separation from the world. The world hates Jesus because the disciples, sorry, the, sorry, the world hates Jesus' disciples because the world hates Jesus. The world recognizes that we don't belong anymore. I remember as a new Christian, when, when I tried to spend time with old friends, it became very apparent that we could have no fellowship. That we wouldn't be able just to, just to hang out together like we used to. If the world loves you, you should be concerned, very concerned, because it maybe it does not identify you with Christ. When you turn to Christ, those who were once your partners in crime are now your enemies in Christ. Now you may be able to be cordial with them, but you can have no true fellowship. Now for most Christians throughout the history of the church, there has been full-blown animosity from the world towards the followers of Christ. And it has resulted and continues to result in horrific persecution. And each of the disciples would know that intimately. But again, no amount of hostility from the world, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In the world, we will have tribulation, but take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. John 16, 33. But Jesus says that he doesn't ask the Father to take the disciples out of the world. They have a mission to perform in the world, just as Jesus did. Instead, Jesus asks the Father to keep them from the evil one, or to keep them from the evil, as some translators put it. But again, the Greek could be translated either way, and again, both are true. Jesus does intercede for us that we would be protected from the evil one. In Luke 22, 31 and 32, he says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may, sorry, that your faith may not fail. Jesus interceded that Peter would be protected from the evil one. And he, he intercedes for us that we would be also protected from the evil one. But I believe the context supports the latter translation, keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, but they need protection from the evil of the world. The world tries to make us like its own. It tries to make us one of its own. We're constantly being bombarded with messages from the world. That what the world views is, is, is good is what we should be doing. And that what God views as good we should be avoiding. This is the message of the world. It's hard for a firefighter to go into a burning building and to not come out smelling like smoke. The smoke of the world tries to cling to us. It tries to choke us and suffocate us. 
But just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fiery furnace with their hair unsinged, with their, clo- their cloaks unharmed, and with no smell of smoke on them because of the protection of the one who was with them in the flames, we also can come out of the world unaffected by the world because of Jesus' prayer. Have you noticed that the sin which that you once loved, you now detest? Have you noticed that the pleasure you once lived for, you now see as a distraction? These things are ours and are increasing because of Jesus' prayer. Because Jesus interceded for us there and is continuing to intercede for us. And again, Jesus says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. To be sanctified is to be made holy, to be separated unto God for holy service to God. Here it means specifically to be set apart from the world for sacred duty to God in the world. Now, earlier we saw how Jesus referred to God as Holy Father. God is the thrice holy God, Isaiah 6, 3, Revelation 4, 8. Because God is holy, we are holy. We're told in 1 Peter 1, 16, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Beloved, this is not a command. This is a promise. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, This is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will, brothers and sisters, is that we will be sanctified. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8.29 Now we might like to think of ourselves as nonconformists. But every day we are being conformed to something. We are being conformed either to the world or conformed to Christ. And true Christians are being conformed into Christ-likeness. They're being progressively sanctified, gradually being made more holy. Positionally, we are already holy. Positionally, we have been set apart. But gradually in our lives, as we grow, we are and being shaped, we are being made more like Jesus. And what is the mechanism of that sanctification? How does sanctification take place? Jesus says it right there in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification comes through the truth of God. God's word. Sanctification does not come about by osmosis. Sanctification doesn't come about while your Bible sits on the shelf any more than it would if your Bible sat on your head. You've got to get it into your head and only then will it get into your heart. The Holy Spirit works in conjunction with the Holy Word. Romans 12, 2. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's that conformed word again. And again, you need to see that there are forces in the world working against you, trying to conform you into its image so that you can be protected from its influence. Now the Father sent Jesus into the world. He set him apart for a mission to glorify the Father in the world, verse 4, to manifest the Father's name to those who were given to him, verse 6, to give them the Father's words, verse 8, and to guard them in the Father's name, verse 12. And then Jesus would go back to the Father by way of a Roman cross. But in the same way, Jesus sends the disciples into the world to glorify the Father to the world, to reveal the Father's name to the church, to give the church the Father's word, and to protect the church in the Father's name. For the sake of the disciples, Jesus set set himself apart for this sacred service so that the disciples would be set apart for their sacred service so that they would be able to serve the church for the glory of God. And that was not just true for those disciples, but for all disciples. Turn your Bible, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter five, verses eighteen to twenty-one. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now think about your life over the past month. How many different engagements have you had with those of the world? How many of those times have you been used as an ambassador for Christ? We can only be ambassadors for Christ to the extent that we are consecrated for service unto God. Fellow Christian, if you have not been used of God in this way, then you do not understand your role in the world means that you are not being conformed to the image of Christ as you should be. Now, maybe some of us are feeling a little bit guilty here. If you aren't doing your job, you're not performing the mission that you were sent to accomplish, you should feel guilty. You should feel bad about that. Because you're not obeying your commander-in-chief. But
but don't be paralyzed with feelings of guilt. Let those feelings of guilt cause you to flee to Christ, to confess your sin to him, to ask his forgiveness and for his cleansing from all unrighteousness. So see your failings in this area as a spiritual barometer, as a spiritual thermometer that maybe shows that our love for Jesus has, has cooled off from where it should be. Confess it to God. And he will forgive you. And he will cleanse you. Ask him to help you to see the glory of the cross in such a way that you cannot help but proclaim God's glory from the rooftops. Seek the company of others who will also spur you on to love and good deeds and then do the same for them. To remind each other that we are ambassadors for Christ. To serve together in this world faithfully by God's grace until such time that he calls us home and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank you that you have called us in holiness. Lord, that you have made us holy in Christ. That our holiness in Christ is being preserved till that last day. And that our holiness in Christ is growing day by day. We thank you, Lord God, that Jesus prayed these things for the disciples, that he prayed these things for us, and that he continues to intercede for us before your holy throne. So I pray, Lord, that you help us to go forth from this place with holy joy and holy confidence that transforms every area of our lives. That we would be basking in the glow of your glory. That we might be changed for your glory. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.